Hi, I'm Scott Dunn, and welcome to the first season of Voices of ULI, a podcast brought to you by the Urban Land Institute Asia-Pacific. In conversation with thought leaders and industry experts, I'll be asking them to reflect personally on their career journeys, particularly on the actions that they've made that have had significant impact on land use and development today, and what their vision holds for the future of our communities that we live in. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Chung Kun Hing, who's the chairman of the Center of Livable Cities at the Ministry of National Development in Singapore. Welcome to Voices of ULI. To start with, I want to hear a little bit about your early years, about the place you grew up in in Singapore. What was that community like? Hi, Scott. Uh, thank you for having me on the program and hello to everyone who's uh, tuning in. Well, I grew up in the East in Singapore and uh, and I love the East side of Singapore. It's really a, if you have visited Singapore, it's a very eclectic and over feel about the East because it has the sea, the, the nice parks and the typical Peranakan type flavors in the Katong Juchet areas. And uh, in fact, in the recent uh, Time Out uh, magazine, it has listed Katong, I think they also mean Juchet, which is a heritage area, as one of the coolest neighborhoods in the world. And uh, Katong now sits at, I think, number 33 of out of 100 places that were listed. So uh, in a way, it's a very nice eclectic feel. And I recall when I was young, there used to be a lot of kampongs around, you know, and for international audiences. A kampong means a little village. There were a lot mm-hmm. of villages around uh, in the old days and you had the sea and just very near to, to you. So that was really very nice. Did you spend a lot of time out? Because the kampong usually has you know very good social spaces. And then also, did you um, at that time spend much time along the East Coast or actually on the ocean? Yeah, actually, there used to be some really nice uh, parks uh, today, of course, with the reclamation, the sea is pushed out. But previously, the sea was actually quite close to the east side. And you can take very nice walks along the parks. And uh, I remember this jetty that is at Katong uh, Park. You can walk out the jetty, you know, and people used to swim there. So it's, it's actually very nice. And with some of the very old bungalows, you know, that were located just next to the sea. Right. Actually, there's a few of those still remaining, but they're a little bit further back from the ocean now. <laughs> yes. Um, so w- when was it when you first started to get interested in city planning, architecture, real estate? And I guess w- when did you first start understanding the functioning of the of the city? Well, it did start that way, Scott. When I was in school, um, I ended up taking subjects that were a little bit technical, you know, meaning I did a lot of mathematics and uh, things like physics. And uh, it was a course that was very suitable for someone to do engineering, although I, <laughs> at that time, not many women did engineering. But I realized that uh, after high school that actually I, I had a creative side because I like literature and music. And so I thought architecture was probably the best uh, balance, gave me a balance of my right brain and my left brain. Uh, it enabled the technical side to be mixed with the creative side. So that's why I picked uh, architecture. And I was uh, fortunate to have had the opportunity then to uh, uh, have the Colombo Pan Scholarship given to me and to have a chance to study overseas. 
at that time in Singapore, you know, being a, a country that was very young, to be able to go to university and to be able to study overseas uh, was a, a great opportunity because not many people could afford to do it at that time. So it was quite a big adventure to be able to study architecture overseas. Right. I guess I, you would get influenced from some of the, the cities you'd visit um, as well as through the studies then in terms of, of architecture and design. So that foundation was really started through kind of university um, and more on the academic side. Yes. And actually the funny thing was that uh, at the end of my course, uh, we, are, we are bonded to be in civil service for a number of years. When I came back, uh, I was not uh, put to a job in architecture. I was actually posted to a job that had to uh, deal with uh, planning. So that was quite a change. And for the first time, I was exposed to something beyond architecture. Uh, of course, initially, there was some disappointment because uh, uh, when I did my architecture degree, I actually did reasonably well. But uh, And then I was thrown into this job that did that with planning and I had to find out what planning was all about. But I must say that that in a way opened up new doors because over time I realized that, you know, hey, planning can actually give you a greater sphere of influence beyond just a single building. You could actually influence the city a lot more than if you were to do architecture. So in that sense, I, I grew to uh, like urban planning and to grow that passion in cities. So in a way, it was an a interesting twist in a career change. Did you get a lot of opportunity in that time period then to visit other places? Yes. Uh, I visited a lot of cities because, you know, Scott, there is no perfect city. Uh, most times I'm often asked the question, so which is the best city in the world? I can tell you there's no perfect city. But different cities are very good at different aspects um, in their development and you want to learn from them. You want to learn from the best on what they did right, but you also want to learn what they did wrong so that you right. don't repeat it. So I, I just give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, when we were working on the transformation of the waterfronts in Singapore, we actually looked at many cities, right? I, I had a very close look at places like uh, Sydney, where they had the Darling Harbour, especially when we were starting to look at the planning and urban design of uh, Marina Bay and some of the waterfront areas. And then you can look at the Melbourne Docklands and the London Docklands. At that time, the Eastern Docklands were uh, being planned and developed. Uh, and you have Vancouver, that had fantastic waterfronts, especially for residential developments. And even places like uh, Amsterdam or, uh, you know, and aspects of New York, I still remember walking around Battery Park and the World Trade Center, when the World Trade Center was still standing, you know, at that time, uh, before 9-11. So uh, it was quite amazing. You know, if you want to look at vibrant cities, then there are a lot of other cities, right? It could be London, New York, even the Spanish cities like Bar Barcelona. If you want to learn about sustainability, you have places like Copenhagen, the Netherlands, uh, smart cities. Again, we did many trips to look at smart cities. It'll be things like, again, Helsinki, Barcelona, Madrid, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, so many. And the Chinese cities, Beijing, Shenzhen, Hangzhou, they are the up-and-coming cities. And if you right. will look at conservation, you uh, will be also looking at cities that had great uh, conserved uh, heritage. 
Just one more little anecdote. Uh, I was also involved when I was in HDB in the reclamation work in Singapore. HDB is one of the largest reclamation uh, agencies of Singapore. And I remember going to uh, Rotterdam because they were reclaiming for their new port. They moved the river port out towards the sea, right? And freed up a lot of land. And I was out there for three hours in the driving wind, you know, waiting to see how they close off the reclamation. Closing off the final stages of the reclamation from the sea is a very technically challenging process. So I was, I was out there in the driving wind with all the sand blowing around, just looking at how they were doing it. So all yeah. this is really learning, Scott. We're always learning. No, it's true. And it's interesting. And I guess, I mean, with some of those early projects, um, how did that really shape your design thinking process then uh, in terms of you know, maybe talk about a, a couple of your uh, initial projects? I suppose if you look at Marina Bay is a very good example. You know, even the, the, the shape and the size of the bay, how wide should it be? How long should it be? I think that is a big question of scale, right? So we looked at different uh, uh, waterfronts. Darling Harbour is a very good example, but the scale was more intimate for Darling Harbour. And, and I think for those who have visited, you will see that it's very vibrant because the scale was smaller with a lot of activities all around the bay. But we then looked at places like Baltimore. Baltimore has a much larger scale. And in the end, we chose something a little closer to Baltimore. Why? Because the scale of Marina Bay with all the surrounding buildings is very high. It's much higher and larger. So we could not afford to have a scale that's too small. But yet, we want it to be a scale that is generally sufficiently intimate for a lot of activities on the water that you can stand around the bay but not be overwhelmed by the buildings all around it. So this is urban design, right? The sense of scale. And, and, and looking at what other people have done really helps you to scale in your mind exactly what is the, the right scale you want to do. So that's an example. Well, I guess and, and switching into Marina Bay and the, the impact of, of Marina Bay, because I think that's something you know early in your career, in the, um, in the early 90s, you became head of the urban design development part, department with a focus on um, on Marina Bay. And already at that time, there was a lot of area that was reclaimed. And so uh, in terms of that, that initial evolution and, and that initial thinking um, of the efficiency of the land and that return on investment, I guess if, if the initial component was more related to, to Baltimore, how did that start to then change as you got into the design parameters, looking at the land that you had, but then thinking about how the city was going to evolve over time and how to balance the right different mix of uses for those spaces? That's a very good question, uh, Scott. Uh, for those tuning in who may not be familiar with Singapore, actually Marina Bay is the new city extension of Singapore. I must say that Marina Bay is really a great example of forward planning that Singapore is known for. And uh, I think a lot of credit must go to my predecessors because the land at Marina Bay was reclaimed in the 70s, in the 1970s, by previous planners who anticipated the need to grow the city. 
And as uh, most people know, Singapore is a very small city-state of uh, barely 720 square kilometers. It is a city and a country, very land-constrained. But planners therefore looked ahead and knew that they had to create land. And by reclaiming the land in the 1970s, it completely helped to ease the pressures of urban development in the existing city. And it has a lot of implications because it enabled us to actually conserve large areas of Singapore, which is our built heritage. Otherwise, like in most cities, we would have to tear down a lot of these old buildings. And we managed to conserve them by large districts, not just singular buildings, right? I think you have Chinatown, Little India, Kampung Glam. They were complete districts that we kept. And uh, so Singapore have actually uh, safeguarded more than 7,000 uh, buildings and structures and much of it in huge districts. So that was a very important consideration. Of course, uh, therefore, really, Marina Bay is a shows the hallmark of uh, Singapore's governance, I always say. And it helps us to strike this balance between development and the conservation of heritage. Maybe I just talk a little bit about, about Marina Bay. Actually, Marina Bay have multiple plans developed since the 80s and the 90s. We went through several versions, you know. And at that mm. time, we even brought in IMP and uh, Tange who developed different plans for Marina Bay. And the configuration of the bay kept changing. The first reclamation was not the final configuration. And as I explained, we actually went around looking at other cities before we decided on the final configuration, which was slightly smaller, the bay, than the earlier reclaimed areas. So uh, we sized the bay over time. And there were multiple plans, you know. And I must say that I came in at a time in the early 2000s and was, uh, uh, had this great opportunity to finalize that plan. In fact, change some of the ideas and uh, eventually had the opportunity to implement it together with my uh, URA team. Were there a couple uh, big changes that you brought to the plan? Yeah, I think, I think firstly, it's the shape of the bay, for example. Okay. But we pretty much, uh, in the end, adopted a more grid format for the bay. Uh, and that was, again, slightly influenced by SOM that came in much later after the uh, IMP and the Tange plan. Uh, possibly because it was the most efficient plan. So that was one change. Uh, as I say, the bay was resized. The shape was changed. That's the second change. The third change, uh, which is a very important change, was that we brought in gardens by the bay. All right? The local planners decided that we needed something that is very different, that distinguished Singapore from other cities. Because uh, this was supposed to be our global signature image. So what stands out to people about Singapore? All the buildings are your typical international buildings, right? But what is Singapore known for? It is known as a garden city. So we brought in, in a way, uh, prime land, almost 100 hectares of land set aside for a garden. So that was a big signature move by the planners. 
But in a way, it was also influenced by looking at other global cities. I mean, you have London that has Hyde Park, you have New York that has Central Park, right? And it added so much of a green relief to the city. But of course, Gardens by the Bay is far more modest, but still a very large piece of land. Uh, open space in the heart of cities um, is always the, the anchor. Um, and it's, it's a place that over time has been shown to be incredibly valuable uh, beyond just financial value, but social and environmental value. Uh, and, and on that point of value, I guess, um, this reclamation that was done, a lot of cost put in. Um, a lot of cost in terms of building some of the core infrastructure for getting the building uh, blocks ready and developed. Was there a pressure on the team in terms of starting to push that out to the market um, to get a return on all of this investment? And maybe talk a little bit about that component of it in terms of um, uh, trying to, to get private sector involved and start to develop um, all of the different parcels of land. Absolutely, Scott. It was very challenging. So I will just touch a little bit on the plan before I move on to how do we deal with getting investors in. The plan is designed such that it brings a lot of real estate value to every parcel that was marked out, right? We had this grid, uh, road grid that came in and we had brought in Gardens by the Bay. Not only does it have social value, it has real estate value because it meant that Almost every parcel of land in Marina Bay had either a sea view, a waterfront view, or a garden view. And the way we brought in the road grid meant that the parcels became, uh, can be adjusted flexibly. It can be big parcels or it can be small parcels depending on the need. And later we can talk about some of the more iconic projects and why they were parceled out in a certain way. But Scott, when we were, when I came in as the CEO of URA, that was in 2003. And, uh, and, you know, we felt it was time to start on the infrastructure for Marina Bay because otherwise there's immense pressure for land in the existing city. The plan was done. We were ready to go. Unfortunately, we were hit by SARS and that really disseminated the economy. SARS was, a, uh, a crisis of confidence, not just a pandemic, but it was a crisis of confidence. And suddenly all real estate came to a halt, right? And I had two big challenges. One is internal and one is external. The internal one was to convince the decision makers to put in millions of dollars to bring in infrastructure to Marina Bay, even though we think there may be no investor. Because planning requires you to put in the investment into millions of dollars of infrastructure in order to have the land ready for the time when you need to develop it, right? And it's a chicken and egg because if you don't put in the investment, how can you convince investors that you're serious and that you put your money where your mouth is? So it was first an internal challenge. And I must say, I had to go back several times before I could convince the government that, yes, it's time to sink the money in, even though we were just in the midst of an economic crisis and slowly coming out of the crisis. Fortunately, the crisis didn't last too long because SARS was over within two years, you know. Now, the external challenge was convincing investors. So we did a lot of 
selling and marketing to investors. So he participated in a lot of the international real estate fairs like MIPIM in Nice, France, which is the largest real estate uh, fair every year in the world, right? So we participated a lot. We explained a lot about the plan. And as a result, I think um, investors started to take notice. But they took even more notice when we tell them that, look, we've already committed millions of dollars and we have started on the infrastructure. That was very important to build confidence. I think that is absolutely important. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because we had uh, Simon Tracy um, conversation with Simon on Asia Square Tower, and he did reference MIPIN as the point of which they were first introduced to Marina Bay and to that as a potential site, and then went on from from there, you know, two thousand six, two thousand seven. So, yeah, I think that those roadshows definitely helped in terms of getting interest uh, and to see availability. But was it, was there ever pressure on on the amount of land to release um, and the timing of that? Uh, yeah, well, yes. In Singapore, you see, it's a little different, maybe from say Hong Kong, right? Uh, there is there's very long term comprehensive planning. So the amount of land that we released every year, we are careful not to over release or to under release, because we do projections, very long term projections on demand. And supply. And so what we want is a moderated market. We don't want these huge swings of uh, 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 undersupply and then the market shoots up and we don't want these huge bubbles uh, that burst, right? Suddenly, because you oversupply. So it's actually a reasonably carefully managed process, understanding market needs and we'll re- we will release it accordingly. And because the, the planning is so comprehensive, we also knew where to direct the growth too. And at that time in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s, the focus was Marina Bay. And so we released land in Marina Bay rather than releasing land everywhere that competed with Marina Bay. So this is a a very important process. I just want to come back and uh, mention about, you know, these roadshows and uh, explaining. Planners also need to explain to people your aspiration and your vision and to excite the investors that we're in it for the long haul. And if they invest, there is value in their investment. So I, I give you one example. I remember sitting next to uh, Sheldon Edelson, who, of course, uh, at that time owned Marina Bay uh, Sands, the Sands uh, project, right? And I, I was sharing with him that, look, the whole idea is to have this necklace of pearls around the bay, which were major iconic projects that were scattered around the bay, forming this necklace of pearls. And I said, the Marina Bay Sands project, which took up almost one entire side of the bay, would be one of this very important pearl, you know. And in the end, after he had bidded successfully and won the project, when the project was completed, and I remember there was a a dinner, you know, and I sat next to him and he told me, he said, you know, I remember that you you visited Las Vegas and, and you told me about the necklace of pearls. And we have built that pearl, you know. So it did sink into the investor, right? That this big aspiration is important. And of course, I didn't only talk to him. I talked to so many potential investors. And then they understood what the plan and the vision was about. And that gave confidence in investing in Marina Bay. So that was actually uh, very, very important. 
Yeah, I think that's a part that uh, not a lot of people see is the amount of time and effort spent in actually promoting um, and, and uh, um, selling the plan in terms of getting others involved. Um, at that time, we were working quite closely with Sheldon on Kotai Resort and uh, all the work in Macau, and then that started here. So both places actually grew up around the same time period in terms of uh, impact, which is and and when and when uh, SARS uh, uh, and there was a financial crisis, Scott, you might remember, right in the middle when all this was under construction, yeah. Sheldon Elderson had to decide where to put the money, you know, and he put his own money in Singapore because he had confidence in the project, and we finished it. Can you imagine a half finished Marina Bay Sands right in the middle of Marina Bay? Well, yeah. thank goodness that didn't happen, and he finished it, and the rest is. Uh, Really, history. I must mention the other thing about uh, managing and uh, addressing confidence. Uh, Scott, you might remember Marina Bay Financial Center, right? It's a huge parcel of land, even though it was a consortium. How do you get people to put down so much money? It was billions of dollars, you know, to bid for that piece of land. So we also structured the sales of site in such a way that we shared the risk with the developer. And if you recall, we had an options approach. We allowed the bid to take place in phases, right? You bid for the phase one, you put option money on phase two, and when the time is right, we will then sell you phase two. And we, we shared the risk because if the market went up, of course, you pay us more. If the market went down, we would have adjusted the pricing. So all this is about, you know, the importance of working in partnership with the private sector. And that is very important to uh, instill confidence. And I think that's one thing that uh, when I worked on the plan with you from 2010 to 2014, um, that was one thing we looked at was you know parcel size and um, more accessibility to smaller developers or smaller investors to be able to participate in the build out of the vision of the of the area in the plan. And that it doesn't, doesn't always need to be these huge parcels, which the cost to... Um, uh, to getting on board is incredibly high. So it allows for more participation in terms of how the community is actually implemented over time. Many people asked me, you know, and said, look, the parcels in Marina Bay are too large. But you must understand uh, at what phase that development was. At that time, what we needed was catalytic projects, right? To kick off the whole of Marina Bay. And Projects like Marina uh, Bay Sands, of course, with a mixed development, and uh, uh, Marina Bay Financial Center were large because they were catalytic projects. Uh, it's obvious Marina Bay Sands had to be large. We actually studied a lot of the mixed developments uh, that incorporated, say, a casino. And by the time you add in convention centers, shopping and hotels, it needed to be large to be able to design a high-quality integrated development, including the Art Science Museum. Now, Marina Bay Financial Centre was large because at that time, the feedback from the market was that they wanted large floor plates for trading floors. So that was why it was large. But we did it in phases and we allowed uh, the risk to be mitigated. But going forward, Marina Bay, not all the passes need to be large. I think we have established a very good uh, critical mass already. So now perhaps it's time to think about more vibrancy 
finer grain or medium-sized grain to bring in a lot more diversity into the bay. So perhaps that's something URA might want to think about going forward. Yeah, now that the um, the rail line is coming through and some of the stations are getting close to completion, I think there's opportunities to really look at that in terms of the next wave of development. Um, just one question, I guess, in terms of what's being built to date. Is there a favorite place that you have in Marina Bay? Well, uh, yeah, our favorite places tend to be the ones that we're involved with, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that, uh, yeah, because I... I I spent a lot of time working on the projects. So I think that too, uh, obviously Marina Bay Sands, mainly because the impact was so great, you know. And uh, we worked on the urban design guidelines and the planning guidelines. So when it was tendered, actually we have a very thick volume of planning and design guidelines. It didn't just happen like that. And I think we were very fortunate that uh, uh, Moshe Safdi uh, was very uh, open to responding to these guidelines because Moshe is not just an architect. He's very much an urban planner and a city planner at heart. So with such a big development, he almost looked at it like a mini city and he responded to the Bay. And I think we worked well together to shape it throughout the project, even as he was designing it. And for that, I, I really appreciate it. Of course, the other project is uh, uh, Marina Bay Financial Center. To this day, these two projects are still the main projects fronting the bay. And the Marina Bay Financial Center, of course, uh, its presence is large, right? And uh, But I suppose going forward, uh, there's a lot more that can be done to increase the vibrancy. Marina Bay Sands, because of the mixed use, I feel is a bit more successful in activating the waterfront. Marina Bay Financial Center is still very much a financial center. So I think it would be good if we can find some way to bring in a lot more vibrancy in and around those developments. Of course, the promenade today is an open space and we do bring in a lot of events, but uh, potentially I think more could be done. So two of them have activated the base, so that's good. But I really think more could be done. Yeah, I think it's, um, it shows a really good example of kind of progression over time um, and this long-term term thinking. Um, and it's something that, as we've touched on, uh, there's been many points in the process where there's been a redirection. And um, I guess to the, this notion of the, the vision for the future. So in the Asian cities that have been developed around, around the region, um, a lot was done very quickly to get um, infrastructure in place, uh, as you mentioned, to be able to attract others, to be able to provide for uh, economic growth, jobs, uh, provide basic housing. We didn't touch too much on your role with, with HDB today, um, but you know, in terms of being able to, to just house people. So a lot of things were done very, very fastly in, fast in this rapid, rapid urbanization. Um, now you've moved on to the, the center of livable cities and Lee Kuan Yew Center of Innovative Cities. And I'm kind of interested in your thoughts about the next evolution of Asian cities um, and, and where you see that headed. Yeah, I think you touch on one of the challenges of Asian cities. We are always in a hurry, Scott. And yes. being in a hurry sometimes is not a good thing, right? And even if you're in a hurry, because you tend to shortcut, you don't think through, and you lack that design excellence and the finer things that is needed to make a, a development excellent. 
So I, I would urge that even as we have to go fast pace, uh, you have to think through all the details in putting to, together a city. And, and I hope that is what everybody will do despite the, the, the pressure you know, to build quickly. But you don't want to build a lot of mediocre developments because it's going to be with you for decades. Now, going forward, so what, what are the things that cities we think uh, uh, need to think about? Uh, you know, with the pandemic, everybody says, okay, build back better and you want to move on to something else. But I actually think that in the case of particularly Asia, don't forget there are many basic things that have not been resolved. They are still the age-old issues of things like affordable housing, reliable basic amenities like clean water, sanitation, electricity, waste management. And these things still remain and have to be solved. You cannot step away from it. But with the pandemic, what has added on to that layer, particularly with uh, more mature cities and slightly better developed cities, we know that uh, many of the more mature and developed cities, we are into the next stage whereby most of them are brownfield sites. So rejuvenation becomes a very important part. I would just quickly mention three, I think, broad trusts we may want to think about as we move into the next phase of development for Asian cities. One is, as I mentioned, we need to be more sustainable and resilient. The pandemic taught us that, right? Um, and we have to think about sustainability and resilience in the way we plan and develop. So uh, rejuvening, rejuvenating and redeveloping aging infrastructure would be a priority. And of course, where possible, we should adapt existing buildings for new use. The greenest building is the one that is already existing. Every time you pull down one and you build one, you're using a lot of resources. But the reality is that you still need to build new simply because many of the older buildings are not of good quality and they, have, uh, they are no longer fit for purpose and have run their useful economic life. So where you do need to build new, then I would say they provide opportunities to truly build a more low carbon world and to build greener. So we have to think about more energy efficient uh, use of the buildings, the way we design the buildings, greater vibrancy, using the right materials and construction methods that reduce embodied carbon because the construction industry has very high embodied carbon. So if you have to build new, then build green. I think the second thing to think about, the second thrust really is you need more human-centric, equitable and healthier cities. Um, we now need to look at cities not just as machines, right, which are efficient, but they have to be human-centric. You need to be more car-like. Is it pedestrian-friendly? Do we provide people with the basic amenities of affordable housing? Uh, is it cyclist-friendly? Great public spaces for, to encourage interaction. And is it more equitable, right? And housing is a key. Giving access, more equal access to affordable housing basic amenities and recreational opportunities. Uh, that is important. And most importantly, with the new ideas of digital, it's about reducing the digital divide. Let me just finish the third broad thrust I thought it's important. We will have to build digital cities. And we, as a result, we will move more towards being digital economies and digital societies. Uh, the pandemic has shown us that 
you don't have much of a choice. You're moving towards being a digital, having digital economies and digital uh, societies. But what can we do with the right infrastructure? You have to put in the basic infrastructure that supports this. But how do we lessen the digital divide? What does it mean for the future of work and the future of society? These things need to be studied. The technology has moved faster than the sociology. And I think we are behind time, Scott, right? The technology overtake us, but we haven't thought about the code of ethics, right? We haven't thought about many of these things, you know? Well, there's a definite link back into land use, uh, into building code, and just in terms of that issue of affordable housing. Affordable housing is often small, um, equity in housing in a lot of Asian cities, um, there's a lot of divide where the, the poorer parts of the city are in places that are environmentally contaminated. Um, you know, they have other challenges to them. There's very lack of mobility and lack of access to good employment. And those kind of balancing um, of issues, a lot of that does do come back to, to the land use plan, the ability to create affordable housing and those types of issues, which um, need both a strong government governance to it, but also a strong connection to the private sector in terms of being able to implement over time. Kunhing, the other part that I did want to ask a little bit was that this next generation of urban visionaries and sort of tied in with the, you had were the first Asian recipient for the Oli uh, Nichols Prize, which is visionaries in urban development. And I found it fascinating that you took the prize money, which was $100,000, and then donated that to the National University of Singapore to establish a scholarship for Singaporeans related to urban planning. And that kind of shows, I think, this connection to education and being able to train this, this next group to be able to handle the three thrusts that you uh, mentioned in terms of the vision and the transformation of the next evolution of Asian cities. So uh, what are some of the important aspects that this group of of people really need to focus on in terms of skill set? So the encouragement is really to have a new generation of built professionals who care enough about cities, about communities, who want to devote a career, you know, to really make this world and this and people's lives better. We are facing a lot of challenges, right? Look at climate change. This is a huge, huge challenge that we're going to face. And it's going to take a lot of effort by many, many people involved in the built environment to really agree to move forward and to seriously take real action. So you need a whole generation of people to push this forward. And I think you need uh, people that can integrate, that are good at bringing the diverse needs and the skill sets, the disciplines, the technical areas that are required to deal with some of these challenges. Absolutely, Scott. I used to say that an urban planner is almost like a conductor, you know, of of an orchestra. You, You map out the plans and say, okay, this is that piece of music that we all need to play. And then you have lots of different players, right? All the way from different architects, engineers, government officials, you know, and then you have the private sector, the real estate people, and, and then you have the, the uh, civil society groups, the community, and you're trying to, to play the music together so that you can get to that vision and the aspiration. So you're right. You, you need an integrator. And, and I guess that's a, a 
good role for an institute like the Urban Land Institute, uh, which brings together quite a wide range of, of um, people, of stakeholders, um, both on the, the, the technical side, private, public side. Um, and with you know voices of ULI, it's really around the mission of Urban Land Institute, which has shaped the future of the built environment for transformative impact in communities worldwide. What does this mission statement mean to you? Well, I, I think that the mission of the ULI really resonates with me. And I suppose that's why I joined ULI, you know, as, as a member and also to take part and help with its uh, activities because you know, as built professionals, we really want to contribute to making this a better world. And we can do this collectively by sharing knowledge and best practices. We need to collaborate and jointly push for ideas, solutions and policies that can really transform our, our environment and build communities. And I suppose this is what ULI is all about. Thank you very much, Kun Hink, for joining Voices of ULI. You're most welcome. It's been a pleasure having a conversation with you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You're probably listening to this podcast at the ULI Asia-Pacific Reimagine. And I hope you're enjoying this unique, interactive event and find inspiration in reimagining conventional ideas about our cities, business, and life in the ever-changing world of real estate. In the next episode, we'll be interviewing Benjamin Cha, who's the CEO of Grosvenor Asia Pacific.